Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of 1 John chapter 1. 1 John chapter 1. I've done a couple of sermons the month of January, and next week we have a special guest with us, uh, Dave Giles, who is from Grace Brethren International Mission. So this is the last sermon I'll do in the month of January. But uh, we've been talking about the love of Christ. And the love of Christ, when it's understood from the Bible's presentation, we, uh, we begin to understand that it is, a very, it is designed to be a very compelling, a very controlling uh, experience in our relationship with God. The love of Christ is absolutely overwhelming, and the Bible bends over backward to make it clear to us the nature of uh, his uh, attitude toward us and his actions toward us. In 2 Corinthians 5.14, a few weeks ago, we talked about the fact that the love of Christ controls us. It compels us, Paul said, and it drove him in ministry to do what he did. And then we looked at uh, Romans chapter 1, verses 31 to 39, and we found that the love of Christ secures us. In fact, uh, we call it locked in the love of Christ. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And uh, there's nothing that can change that relationship with him. And therefore, we are secure in that relationship. And uh, this morning, we want to talk about our responsibility. In light of what the Bible says about the nature of the love of Christ, uh, you and I are supposed to be changed by the love of Christ. And John takes a book. In fact, the epistle of First John, Second John, Third John, all have to do with our response to the love of God or the love of Christ and what ought to be evident in our lives as a result of our saving relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So the book of First John we're going to look at this morning has to do with how we react to the love of Christ in our lives. What is reasonable to expect. Now when John wrote the book he tells us in the, uh, in the chapters that he wrote why he wrote it. And he's very clear, uh, if you notice chapter 1 and verse 4, he says, These things we write so that our joy may be made complete. John says the reason that he wrote the book is that our joy may be made full. Our joy may be made complete. His desire is for you and I to experience joy, complete joy. Not the kind of happiness that we get in this world when we get a new boat or the kind of happiness we get when we move into a new house. Those things are temporary. Those things satisfy on the short term. But he is telling us here it is possible, Jesus said, it is possible to experience joy even in the midst of trial. Even in the midst of persecution, it is possible for a believer to experience joy. So we're not talking about happiness, we're talking about joy. And joy has nothing to do with my environment. It has everything to do with my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So John says, I, I have written this book that your joy may be full, your joy may be complete. The second reason that the book was written, we find... <clears throat> in uh, chapter uh, 2 and verse 1 my little children I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin he's writing the book so that we won't sin now the fact of the matter is we do sin chapter 1 verse 8 makes it clear if we say that we don't sin we're not telling the truth 
And there is coming a time when we won't sin anymore, but that time won't be our experience until we're in heaven with Jesus Christ. So in the meantime, chapter 2, verse 1, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. So the goal is sinlessness, but no one experiences that this side of heaven. And therefore, Jesus has placed himself in a strategic position in heaven at the right hand of the Father, and there he advocates for us. He represents us when we sin. So the three purposes of the book are that our joy may be made complete, number one. Number two, that we may not sin. And the third one is found at the end of the book, chapter 5 and verse 13, where John gives the third reason why he wrote. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. That means that if a person were to approach you and say, do you know that you have eternal life? You don't need to say, well, I hope so, or I think so, or I hope that my good outweighs my bad when I stand before Jesus. That's a great one. John says, I'm writing these things that you can know. You can have absolute confidence that to be absent from the body, which is basically what death is, is to be present with the Lord. You can have absolute confidence in your relationship with God. John said, that's why I wrote the book. I wrote the book that you might not sin. I wrote the book that your joy may be complete. And I wrote the book in order that you might know that you have eternal life. Those three verses summarize the purpose of the book. And they tell us why he wrote it. So in the book of 1 John, I believe that he reveals five evidences of the love of God working in the life of his child. Five evidences of the love of God working in his child. If uh, John wrote so that you might know that you have eternal life, he would say, look at these five evidences, evaluate your own life, and then determine, am I a child of God? A lot of people today say that they're Christians. A lot of people say that they're born again. A lot of people say that they are a follower of Jesus Christ. John says, here's how you can know. Here's how you can know that you have eternal life. Now, it's good to examine yourself. 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5 says, Examine yourself to see if you're of the household of faith. In other words, he doesn't want us thinking that we're a Christian because we were raised in a Christian home, or we were raised in a Christian nation, or we believe in God. Christianity is much more than those things. John is going to tell us, basically, that the love of God, which has been demonstrated toward you and me through Jesus Christ, is designed to change us from the inside out. And the book of 1 John basically is written to explain the love of God, how it's been demonstrated toward us, how we then respond to that love. And our response gives evidence that we're a child of God, or it absolutely demonstrates that we're not a child of God. John wants us to be absolutely clear on this matter. He wants there to be absolutely no confusion. During the uh, Civil War, President Lincoln attended a Wednesday evening service at a church that was close to the White House, 
and he was always accompanied by the secret service as was his custom he sat in the pastor's study so that he wouldn't be uh, uh, noticed by the people and during the message he sat there with the secret service and then uh, he was walking back to the White House with a couple of guys in the, um, among the secret service and they were talking among themselves and one of the men asked President Lincoln well what did you think of tonight's sermon and Lincoln said it was brilliantly conceived, biblical, it was relevant, and well presented. So it was a great sermon, he was asked. No. No, Lincoln said it failed. It failed because Dr. Gurley did not ask us to do something great. This morning, in light of the, of the challenge of the book of 1 John, in light of the challenge of the fact that the love of Christ is compelling, it is absolutely controlling to the child of God. In light of the fact that you and I are secure in the love of Jesus Christ, my desire for you and for me in 2010 is that we engage in things that are significant, is that you and I engage in th things that are great, that we stop the mediocre day-to-day -day existence and, and learn to get up every day in 2010 motivated, compelled, and driven by the love of Jesus Christ. That's my prayer for myself, and that's my prayer for every person who attends this church. In the words of Lincoln, I don't want us to fail to do something great in light of God's truth, in light of God's Word. So the book of 1 John reveals five evidences of the love of God working in the life of His kids. The first one that I want to call to your attention is found in chapter 3 and verse 10. Here we read that, the love, that God's love demands a loving response on our part. Every child of God who has been affected by the love of Christ will respond to that love and give demonstration of the fact that they have been changed by the love of Jesus Christ and basically what John tells us here is that we are to love our brother and he expresses the love of God in our lives and we respond with action and with truth and then he tells us it's our responsibility it's our obligation look at verse 10 first John chapter 3 verse 10 by this the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother John is saying it is inconceivable that a person who has experienced the life-changing uh, power of the gospel that has been the object of the love of Jesus Christ it is absolutely impossible for that person in turn not to respond toward his brother who's in need. Sometimes people in the, Chris, in the church uh, go to church because they have to go to church. And uh, among their friends, they laugh at the things of God. And people who laugh at the things of God and relish their sinful behavior and withhold their resources from their brother or their sister who is in need, John is very clear. They're not a child of God they're not regardless of what they say they are not notice chapter 3 verse 16 we know love by this that he laid down his life for us and we 
ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's good and sees his brother in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God abide in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. In other words, as Jesus Christ sacrificed himself for the people who were the object of his love, so also when you and I are controlled by the love of Christ, the love of God within, we are willing to sacrifice our resources for people in the body of Christ who are in need. It is a natural, normal response. Therefore, when you see that quality within yourself, you can be certain that you've experienced the love of God within yourself and that you are a part of his family. The story is told of a professor of psychology who had no children of his own, but when he saw his neighbors scolding a child, he would say, you should love your boy, not punish him. You should love your boy, not punish him. So one hot summer day, the professor was preparing his concrete driveway. He was tired at the end of the day. After several hours of work, he laid down his trowel, wiped the perspiration from his forehead, and started back to his house. Just then, out of the corner of his eye, he saw a mischievous little boy putting his foot in the fresh concrete. He rushed over, grabbed him, and was about to spank him when a neighbor leaned out his window and said, Watch it, professor. Don't you remember? You must love the child. At this, he yelled back furiously, I do love him in the abstract, but not in the concrete. <laughs> Chapter 4, verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. We also ought. That word in the original language means... It is a debt that we owe to our brother. Because we have been loved by God, we also ought, it is a mor- we have a moral obligation. We have a responsibility in light of that to love one another. John is very clear. That brings us to number two. First one was God's love demands a loving response on our part. If we claim to be Christians, we need to love our our brother, our sister in Christ. Number two, God working his love in us reproduces itself both toward God and his people. Both toward God and his people. Evidence of of our Christian faith uh, is demonstrated by our obedience to God. Our desire will be to do what he tells us to do. Uh, That is clear in chapter uh, 5, verses 1 to 3. We'll we'll look at that in just a minute. Before then, look at 1 John 4, verse 19. 1 John 4, verse 19. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. The Bible tells us in Romans 5, 5, that when we become a child of God, the love of God is shed in our hearts by the person of the Holy Spirit. We get a major dose of the love of God. Romans 5, 5. 
And then in John 13, Jesus told his followers, told his disciples, a new commandment that I give to you, that you love one another. In fact, he says, people in the community will know that you're a Christian as they see the evidence of your love toward one another. That's the new commandment. So basically what uh, John is telling us here is that in testimony of the fact that we have received the love of God through the Holy Spirit, we then in turn are to love one another in the church. And I want to say, folks, you need to know that in the name of Christianity today, there are a lot of people who claim to be Christian but can't stand somebody in the church, can't stand individual people in the, in the congregation. John would say that is absolutely unbelievable that there would be a person in the congregation, a fellow brother or sister, a follower of Jesus Christ, whom a child of God determines he cannot, he will not love. In light of the fact that you and I have received from the love of God in the person of Jesus Christ, in light of the fact that God's love has been poured out in us, it is inconceivable that a Christian would say he cannot, he will not love a brother or a sister. In fact, John would say that's one of the things that marks you as a child of God. And if there is someone you have determined in the congregation that you cannot, will not love, you need to question your salvation. Whoa! Many churches today are being ripped to shreds by people in the congregation with unloving spirits one toward another. It is unbelievable what some Christians say about other Christians to their face and behind their back. It ought not to be. First John chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. I need to pick up and move on. John says, whoever believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. By this we know that we have love Excuse me. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. That means the commandments are not oppressive. They are not exhausting. They are not hard to bear. So 1 John chapter 5, verses 1 to 3 tells us that the nature of God's love toward us means that our desire is to be obedient to His commandments. Now listen, folks, there's basically two points that John makes throughout his entire book, in my opinion. If you get these down, you got the book. God loves you and me. Based upon His love for you and me that He's demonstrated in Jesus Christ, if number one, you demonstrate love toward your brother and your sister in Christ, that is testimony that God's, God's love is in you. Number two, if you are obedient, if you keep his commands, that is evidence that God's love is in you. If your desire is to be obedient to what God says in his word, John says that's a pretty clear indication that you're a child of God. So love for God and people, number one. Love for his word, number two. You get those two, um, um, un you understand those two principles, you've basically got the book of 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Because a person who says 
that I love God, but I want to live life myself, I want to do it my own way, is basically saying, according to John's testimony, you don't love his word, you do not respect his word, and therefore you cannot be a child of God. You may say you're a Christian, you may say that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, but John is basically saying, if that's so, I want to see it demonstrated, not by what you say, but by what you do. Because what you do reveals the truth of who you are. Very clear in John's writings. We have a tendency to forget his commandments. We have a tendency to forget the love of God toward us and as a result when we forget his love toward us we have a tendency to belittle or to ignore his commandments. That's one of the reasons we have communion. Someone was betting me uh, during uh, pre-service prayer time that there wouldn't be many at communion tonight because it's a football playoff. I'm betting that you're going to be here. I'm betting that there's no, nothing on television better than being at the communion table tonight remembering one more time the love of Jesus Christ past, present, and future. I'm betting that if you're a child of God, your desire is going to be here with God's people. I just have a hunch that's true in light of what John says here. You see, once again, we have a tendency to forget what God expects of us. We have a tendency to ignore his commandments when his love toward us becomes, becomes something that we put in the back of our mind and crowd with other things. I would encourage you to come 6 o'clock tonight. The timing of communion in light of this passage is unbelievable. So then chapter 4 and verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. That word ought is a debt that we have toward each other. It is an obligation, as I've mentioned before. It's the same word used in John chapter 13. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, you also ought. It's a debt you owe. It's an obligation to wash one another's. Now, if you've never been to communion before, I want to tell you that we do practice foot washing. In fact, we call it the upper room experience. Tonight, when you come in here, there will be tables everywhere, and people will be invited to sit at the tables. It's an upper room experience. It's reenacting what Jesus did with his disciples the night before he died. It takes about two hours. As Jordan said, bring a sandwich, something to eat, because we practice what's called the love feast, which is a small symbolic meal. We do the foot washing, which we make optional to people who've never experienced it before, never seen it before. We don't want to make anyone feel uncomfortable. We don't ask you to wash somebody's feet that you don't know. It's another member of your family if you choose to. And we all always experience, we conclude the evening with the bread and the cup bread in the cup. It will be very familiar to you. If you've never been, we encourage you to come. Why? Because you are just like me in that we forget. We forget the love of Christ demonstrated toward us. So he knew that we would forget. He gave us symbols. He gave us three symbols that we observe at communion here at Grace Brethren. So, God's love demands a loving response on our part, number one. Number two, God working his love in us reproduces itself both toward God and his people. 
Number three, God working his love in us becomes convincing evidence of our salvation. It becomes convincing evidence of our salvation. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments, he's a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected or brought to completion. By this we know that we are in him. Chapter 3, verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love does, uh, abides in death. John's making it very clear. Chapter 4, verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested or made known in us that God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. A Christian was sick and dying, called on a friend, asked him to come to the hospital. He did. The friend went. As the, friend, as the man was laying in the bed talking about what he was thinking, what he was feeling, saying to, to, to his friend, I feel like very shortly, within hours, I'm going to meet Jesus Christ. And my fear is that I don't love him as much as I should. And his friend said, well, you're looking at it all the wrong way. Rather than you thinking about how much you love him or how much you don't love him, you need to think about the fact that he loves you. He loves you so much that he sacrificed everything to be with you. He died on the cross. He paid the penalty for your sin. If all you're thinking about is your love for him, you are completely consumed with yourself. You are overly consumed and preoccupied with something that sometimes you have little or no control over. But as you're laying here, as you think about his love toward you, that changes everything. You see, because our relationship with Jesus Christ is not your hold on him, it's his hold on you, his hold on me. A secure relationship. And as believers, if we would focus on his love toward us more than our love toward him, John says, forget about your love toward him first, because I want you to focus on the priority of his love toward you. His love toward you is designed to be life-changing. His love toward you enables us and equips us to do significant things in ministry in the name of Jesus Christ. It is his love toward you and me that gives us security in our relationship with God and tells us we can have confidence as we think about that day when we will stand before him. We'll see that in just a minute. Sometimes we look at it all wrong. And the dying friend looked at his friend and said, you know what, you are absolutely right. I am preoccupied with me. And I need to be consumed with the love of Jesus Christ toward me in a way that controls me, compels me, drives me, and moves me in every decision that I make. 
It ought to bring honor and glory to him. The fourth principle, God's love cannot exist in a person who loves the things of the world. John basically says, the world is going one direction, and God the Father is going another direction. You cannot love the world and love God. 1 John 2, verse 15. Do not love the world nor the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the boastful pride of life is not from the Father, but it's from the world. The world is passing away, and also its lusts. But the one who does the will of God lives forever. I can't love the things of the world and the things of God. The things of the world include the lust of the flesh, which is sensualism, the lust of the eyes, which is materialism, and the boastful pride of life, which is egotism. Dave Roper describes worldliness. He says, it's a preoccupation with ease and affluence. It elevates creature comfort to the point of idolatry. Large salaries and comfortable lifestyles become necessities of life. Worldliness is reading magazines about people who live hedonistic lives and spend too much money on themselves and wanting to be like them. But more importantly, worldliness is simply pride and selfishness in disguises. It's being resentful when someone snubs us or patronizes us or shows off. It means smarting under every slight, challenging every word spoken against us, cringing when another is preferred before us. Worldliness is harboring grudges, nursing grievances, and wallowing in self-pity. These are the ways in which we are most like the world. 1 John 2.17 The world is passing away and also its lusts, but the one who does the will of God abides forever. Number five and last. God working his love in us is preparing us for the day of judgment. 1 John 4.17 by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. John says you can have confidence as you anticipate standing before Jesus Christ at the Bema Seat Judgment. So let me say it this way in, in short. Number one, in 2010, I want to urge you to focus on the love of Christ in your life. I want you to make it your mission. Every time you open the book, I want you to ask yourself, how is the love of Christ being demonstrated toward me here? And number two, let the Lord lead you in every area of your life from, the perspective, from that perspective this year. Every decision that you make as an individual, every choice you make as a family, allow the love of Christ to control you. It is designed to change you from the inside out. Thank you, Lord, for loving us. For reasons that we don't fully understand, you have moved yourself toward us even before we even knew you, even before we had any feelings toward you, one way or the other, you chose to love us. And our lives have been changed as a result. Lord, we pray this year would be a year 
where the love of Christ compels us. As we relax in the provision of knowing that we are locked in that eternal love because there is nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. Help us, Lord, to move forward with confidence and with boldness. Help us to move forward in faith, knowing that we are the object of your love. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.